Hello and welcome to this Friday the 13th edition of Fishnets and Phantoms, your genre movie and media review podcast from a postponed perspective. Fishnets and Phantoms is available on all major podcast providers, including the Dark Discussions Network, and we thank them greatly for hosting the show. Today we will do some news of the miscellany and uh, five short reviews of movies that came out recently, both big and small. It's good to see you guys on this wonderful Friday the 13th. I missed last month because, yet again, the world went topsy-turvy for me, but, you know, landed on my feet and off running. So we'll start out with the news of the miscellany. Okay, according to Colossal website, Apparently, they have found a bright red jellyfish down about 2,300 feet in the Atlantic Ocean. It was reported on by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They stumbled upon a striking red jellyfish, a pulsing creature that is presumed to be part of the genus Polyaria. No, or Borrelia, which until now has been compromised of a single species. Scientists say the unfamiliar marine animal appears to have more tentacles than the Borreliella rufescens, rufescens? Uh, meaning that it is likely an entirely new species yet to be classified. The jellyfish also seem to have nemocyst warts on its exumbra, the upper part, or outside of the jellyfish's bell. This, these probably function both for defense, but also to trap prey. The radial canals of it, this genus often branch randomly, which is not unusual for other related jellyfish. This jellyfish was found in what is referred to as the Twilight Zone. A bit odd considering that is a nod to the famous 60s TV show of weirdness. Uh, but this twilight zone is called that because it is the last region of sunlight uh, before the deep dark of the ocean and where it reaches total darkness. Uh, in the Atlantic, this is around the Gulf Stream. The vehicle that found the jellyfish was equipped with 20 LED lights that illuminate the ocean depths and allow for high-definition footage like the rare video shown below, which I will try to post to the website later. Uh, not the website, the group page on Facebook. Yeah, so apparently they found a new pretty shiny jellyfish in the deep, deep, deep ocean. And who knows, we may be able to find uh, new cures from it or new ways to help humanity. Or, best yet, just leave it alone and let it go on its pulsy red little way. Okay, next on news of the miscellany. Uh, according to Popular Science Magazine, there is a new carnivorous plant that has been recently discovered in North America. I, the plant itself, of course, is not new. They just have noticed it. Uh, it's called the Taranthus. Uh, Tran? Tarantha. Accidentalis, which I guess is perfect considering they just happen to run across it. It is in a bog in Cypress Provincial Park in British Columbia, Canada. 
Um, apparently, the scientists affixed fruit flies to the sticky stems of the T. accidentalis growing in a bog near Vancouver and found that the plants absorbed significant amounts of nutrients from the insect prey. This uh, common herb is one of only two carnivorous plants to be identified in the past two decades, and its newfound status suggests that other unrecognized meat eaters may be growing near major cities. The team reported in August 9th in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The plant's been known for a long time, but it's never been understood that it's a carnivore, says Sean Graham, a botanist at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and co-author of the new findings. My suspicion is that there may be other carnivorous plants out there like this that we don't know about. Well, apparently they know about them, they just haven't noticed that they happen to be carnivores. Uh, carnivorous plants are generally found in sunny, wet habitats with low levels of nutrients in the soil where their abilities to suck minerals such as nitrogen and phosphorus from hapless animals gives them an edge. The western false asphodel inhabits wetlands and stream banks along the Pacific coast of North America from California to Alaska. It belongs to the family with no previous Oh, to a family with no previous evidence of carnivory, but it often grows near known carnivorous plants such as sundews and butterworts. The flowering stem of the T. occidentalis can grow to about two and a half feet tall during summertime and are lined with reddish hairs covering, covered in slimy, shiny secretions. Okay. I kind of think that most secretions are slimy and shiny, but I could be wrong. I suppose there could be milkish, dull secretions, but I don't know. If somehow in my mind, slimy and shiny just really it would be what I thought. Scientists have often observed small insects trapped in the sticky hairs. However, they didn't realize that the plant was eating them. All right, well, we've got a blood red jellyfish and a carnivorous through red hairs plant up north in Canada. What else do we got for this Friday the 13th? All right, drum roll please. A new species of pterosaurs have been discovered. A flying reptile that once graced the skies of the Australian outback around 150 million years ago. This imposing dragon-like creature, the Pongaka Shawi, was named to reflect its extremely pointy teeth <laughs> in the now extinct language of the local indigenous Wanamara tribe. Oh, that's sad that they're, the language is extinct, apparently. I hope that the tribe is not extinct, just the language. Uh, and I hope that they are able to find it again. So anyways, this uh, chompy, bitey critter uh, was found in 2011 by a local fossil hunter uh, discovering a portion, portion of what looked like a lower jaw upon examination. Paleontologists realized that this was a new, rather impressive species of Australian pterosaur. Their analysis showed that this winged reptile must have had a skull longer than 3 feet and a wingspan of about 30 feet. 
making it the largest Australian pterosaur discovered to date. They published their findings in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And that comes from popsci.com. All right, so Chompy Things from the Sky is a great segue into our movie review shorts coming up. Because the very first of these short movie reviews this week is going to be A Quiet Place 2, which involves flappy, scary things from the sky. Um, with, yeah, they do have long, pointy teeth. <laughs> All right, this is a follow-up sh- follow to the earlier movie, A Quiet Place, which came out a few years ago. It was oddly a hit. It's oddly a good movie by a first-time director, John Krasansky, who is um, mostly known for his role in The Office. Um, the, the original movie got very good reviews, and uh, I thought it was very good, too. I didn't love it quite as much as some people that I know, Philip Brown. And um, actually, I think that uh, most people liked it a little better than me. I am a picky person, aren't I? I am. I like, I really love weird things that nobody likes, and I dislike things that are extremely popular sometimes. Um, anyways, uh, Quiet Place 2 is very good. Um, it was, let's see, it was released, um, I guess it was made in 2020, but it was just recently released in 2021. Uh, it has a 91, uh, over 92 score of reviewers to regular human beings at Rotten Tomatoes, and um, it was written by John Krasansky and Brian Woods, uh, starring Blunt, Emily Blunt, which I believe is John Krasansky's wife, and Cillian Murphy and Millie, Millicent Sinons, and of course John Krasansky. Um, the movie carries on pretty much right after the last one ended, and I'm probably going to spoil the last one a bit, because that's kind of how I get it. you get into the plot of the new one. So something happens to the father um, of the little troop, which is basically a mother, father, son, and daughter, and uh, a new little bouncing baby that is pretty much the source of all their troubles um, because having a world where you cannot make any noise combined with a tiny screaming baby is not a good combination. Um, In this movie they are on the run from the monsters and are trying to find a new community to go to and um, stumble upon an old friend back from civilization time um, that puts them into reflective mood thinking about things that happened before the first movie uh, when the creatures attacked the first time. It's lightly suggested that they are from space uh, a little bit more this time and um, yeah they don't go in too much more into their anatomy but there's um, a lot of really good uh, action scenes. Uh, Cillian Murphy plays a neighbor that 
had been um, like a good family acquaintance, and him and his kid um, were schoolmates of the kid, the main family's children, and um, he managed to survive after the initial attack of the monsters. Unfortunately, he is surviving alone because he uh, was unable to protect his wife and kid, which has affected him very poorly, as it would anyone. And he's sunk into a deep depression and pretty much given up on life. However, the uh, arrival of the family, Emily Blunt family, shakes him up and they do their best to shake him up further to protect, help protect the family because they have no protection. It's uh, an interesting take on humans is going from the, the lead animal um, down to being prey for another animal. So we are no longer the, well, I guess top carnivore in terms of the carnivore that is able to kill off more of the most of the um, uh, predators underneath it. Um, They are still searching for a new community to be with throughout the movie. And there's a couple scenes that drive me crazy, but it it might just be an Amy thing. Um, No, I don't think so. Um, There's what I call Carl scenes um, based on the walking dead trope of whatever the father Rick tells his kid Carl to do. He will, the kid will do the exact opposite and um, Rick will always yell Carl. And um, there'll be like an incredibly tense scene where uh, the kid Carl almost gets multiple people killed because he was curious or, he really wanted to get pudding or something like that. Um, it's kind of become a movie trope that there's always a kid who's off doing something in ways that seem to the kid to be justified and to everyone else extremely annoying. Uh, the main protagonist of doing annoying things in uh, the Quiet Place movies is Melissa Simons. And uh, she's the older daughter who is deaf and um, her, fam- her whole family knows sign language because of this, which has actually helped them quite a bit to communicate during the uh, attack by the monsters that are uh, attracted to sound, any kind of sound. And uh, that incredi- is incredibly helpful to them. She has a tendency to run off and just do what she wants to do because she's frustrated and she doesn't want to deal with the old people being cautious and it's you know it's a kind of commentary on different um, different generations and generational looks at what the important things in life are she wants to get to other people to show them the um, special monster killer thing that she's um, rigged up that makes them uh, kind of paralyzed because of the high frequency of the sound uh, that she can create with it. And uh, she does not want to stop for anything. But of course, the mother has a little bi- little baby that screams and howls and attracts every monster in the woods. Uh, now, oddly enough, I find myself 
being more sympathetic towards Millicent's character because she is extremely frustrated because partially because of her own disability and her enableness because inability because she um, she's a minor and so people don't take her as seriously and um, which makes sense from a, a grown-ups point of view but she feels that she's the only one who can truly see how important her weapon is now uh, in for my personal life I've had a lot of recent problems with my hearing and um, so I guess I develop more sympathy towards her now because it is incredibly frustrating you can't hear things and people act angry towards you because of it like they will call you many times and when you don't respond they I'm not sure if they assume that you're ignoring them or um, it's just frustration because they're trying to get a hold of you and then you sense their frustration when you do finally hear them and it just makes interactions harder <laughs> it makes interactions harder and emotions go higher so um, I have to say that uh, her behavior makes more sense to me now. I'm not going to give away too much of the plot of the film. It goes from there in from the initial finding of uh, Cillian Murphy in a old factory uh, to meeting up with other humans that have survived the attack. Um, but they are not necessarily nice people. People who survive aren't always nice. Um, Silly Murphy does a good job. Uh, he is one of my favorite actors. I've liked him for oh, many years now. And he's um, his character is it's not it's not got a ton of teeth to it, but what it has he does well with. He uh, does a very good post-traumatic dramatized survivor and um, you can f see his protectiveness of the, the small family coming alive and uh, I don't know I think he does a really good job of it and of course um, Emily Blunt is still playing the same character so she does an equally good job of her part and I didn't really care for either way the the boy's part and I did not write down his name so anyways I apologize to boy in a quiet place too um, but he did a good job um, mostly running away from things and also actually he he was kind of doing a Carl part too also I think he may have ended up saving everybody though not exactly sure how that all worked out but Anyways, I would recommend A Quiet Place 2. I would give it, let's see, out of five screaming blind bat creatures, I would give it, I'd think I'd give it three and a half blind screaming bat, bat creatures. Maybe four. Ah, let's go for four. Four blind screaming bat creatures. The next movie that I'm going to review is called Aftermath, which is a very small movie by Peter Winther and Productivity Media. Uh, it had a 0 over 25 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 
ostensibly because they say it hasn't come out yet, though it has come out about a week ago. Um, I saw it uh, streaming, and I thought it was it was fairly good. I was somewhat surprised, actually, at how good it was. Um, it is starring Ashley Green and Shanoe Ashani, and it is based on some real stories, apparently. I don't know how much to give away with this. I went into it not knowing if it was going to be a, a paranormal sort of story or a um, like a house invasion sort of horror. Uh, it seems to be both, actually. Um, it, like I said, it didn't have very many reviews because it's only been out for a very short time. Um, a lot of the reviews seem to be anywhere from seeing its praise and extremely um, appreciatory of the movie to people who didn't like it at all and were annoyed by the fact that it is a combination of seemingly paranormal and seemingly reality-based ideas. Uh, perhaps the reason that I was attracted to it is because I remember seeing the stories that it was based on in the media and thinking, wow, that's weird. That seems like it's straight out of a movie. So I, <laughs> I guess now it is. Anyways, um, it concerns a young couple who are trying to get over recent infidelity by the wife. And um, the husband has the strange job of being a cleaner for uh, murder scenes. And so he finds a, well, he's cleaning a really large mansion um, that's quite beautiful. And afterwards, he's at a uh, psychologist meeting, a uh, family therapist meeting with his wife. And the therapist kind of recommends that they do things to move forward with their relationship rather than constantly looking back on the past. And he agrees, and the next day he goes and he speaks to the family that owned the large mansion that the murder had taken place in and uh, makes an offer on it, which, of course, is lower than normal offers would be on this, on this beautiful house because of the tragic history in it. The people do end up selling it to him, but they seem very dodgy about it. They don't seem to be exactly help, happy about it, which I guess makes sense. It was not their property. It was belonged to the wife's brother, I believe, and his, his wife, so her sister-in-law, who was also murdered, um, she had designed it specifically, like, to her exact needs, because she was an architect. I thought that that seemed a little strange, but um, it is something definitely to keep in mind. I really liked like the, the general feel of the movie, the uh, characters, uh, Peter Winther, oh, oh no, I'm sorry, Peter Winther is the uh, director, but um, Ashley Green and um, Shono Shoni are are very good in it. They uh, seem like a 
a nice, fairly normal couple trying to get through a pretty hard time in their lives. Um, I mean, you know, nice-ish. <laughs> the guy cleans up murder scenes, so it's not particularly great. And um, there's some more things to do with her infidelity uh, that comes come back and threatens their new happiness as well as odd happenings in their house and a strange relationship with strange and strained both a relationship with her mother and sister who are both very odd as if they have some mental illness possibly I think that they might have mentioned bipolar disorder so yeah it's a good movie I thought I liked it I know that um some people didn't like it because it was quiet and long, and it seems to be that most audience scores of movies lately, unless they're like an action movie fast, are not considered good. It's, um, I don't know, it's kind of an unfortunate uh, direction that critics have been going in. But I don't know, well, it's, it's a little bit quiet. It kind of reminds me of a mystery. Uh, from like a PBS uh, sort of story, but I really like those. So, uh, but it's set in modern times in I believe San Francisco, somewhere in somewhere in California. But I would recommend that one as well. It's out on streaming now, and it was released August fourth, twenty twenty one. Oh, okay. The next movie is a is Blood Red Sky. I always want to say Under a Blood Red Sky, but that is the U2 album and not the movie. Um, so Blood Red Sky is a story by Peter Tornworth, directed by John Brador, and it stars Perry Baumeister and Carl Koch uh, as Nadia and Elias. Elias. Uh, they are a mother and daughter who are flying to America for a medical treatment for the mother. The beginning uh, shows a bunch of flashbacks to a time when her, her husband was around and Elias was just a little baby, and they were attacked by something in the woods. Uh, apparently the father does not seem to survive, the mother is attacked, but she manages to beat off of her attacker and get her and her son safely to a old beaten up house where she's uh, captured by a group of, I think mostly men, and she barely makes it out alive. Um, then it flashes forward, even though it's still a flashback, within the flashback, it flashes forward, and it uh, shows her dealing with some sort of sickness. You can't quite tell what it is at first. Uh, she seems to have lost her hair. She is very pale, and uh, she keeps uh, some like strange medical instruments in the house, and She's talking online with doctors that are um, promoting a cure, a, well, treatment of possible cure for her condition, quote unquote. She goes to the airport under um, cover of darkness and uh, tries to just keep everything 
well controlled, keep her whole situation as controlled as possible. Unfortunately, that does not work out well for her. Um, her son makes friends with a Middle Eastern looking man um, and it is a good thing that he does because in the foregoing uh, story he ends up helping them a lot. Of course the Middle Eastern man is seen as a terrorist by the stereotyping crew of the plane and um, other passengers which I, I don't really know how much that is true in the real world anymore, but in fictional worlds it seems to be falling out of movie tropes slightly, though I'm not exactly sure how much. Um, anyways, it turns out that they definitely should not have been scared of him compared to some of the other people on the plane. There is a hijacking and they decide to um, unfortunately focus on the mother, Nadja, and that is a bad idea. <laughs> She's not the one. Um, there is a lot of action in this movie. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. It was, let's see, it got an 81 critics over 57 regular ass human beings um, on Rotten Tomatoes, but um, I'm surprised actually because I thought it was a lot a lot of fun and usually critics like things that are a um, little slower and a little uh, more artistic, but this one isn't particularly artistic. It does have some beautiful scenes in it, um, like sunrises and so on, but there's uh, a lot of just like fun kind of it's got a, like a, a feeling of a taken sort of um, feeling to the movie you kind of expect uh, Liam Neeson to come around a corner at any point in time though you know of course he's the Neesons so he will take care of everything and there will be no more problems <laughs> but I'm not gonna give away too much more I would say definitely uh, give it a watch and um, report back on the Fishnets and Phantoms group page or the group or the page on Facebook with your thoughts on the movie. Okay, and onward to probably the most popular um, film of this week's podcast, uh, Suicide Squad 2. That was released, I think, about a week ago. It has a Rotten Tomato ranking of 91 over 83, which, again, the critics are higher than the regular people. Um, it is put out by Atlas Entertainment and Warner Brothers, and it was directed by James Gunn, written by James Gunn, and everything by James Gunn. <laughs> James Gunn is famous for being the head of the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise as well. He recently came out saying he doesn't like, he doesn't want to do superhero movies anymore. I don't know how genuine he's being about that because he seems like somebody who really likes superhero movies just kind of intrinsically, but we'll see what happens. Uh, the movie stars everyone. Um, it stars Idris Elba, Margaret Robbie, John Cena, Viola Davis, Joel Kinnaman, Peter Capaldi, Daniela Melchior, Michael Rooker, etc., etc., etc. 
uh, and a giant shark that's played by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, it is a fun movie. It is uh, extremely violent. So if you don't like violence, don't watch it. It's violent and it's bloody and gory, but in a very comic book sort of way because it is based on a comic book um, by DC. It is in the DC universe, the Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman universe. And these are all, they're not only B superheroes or, or they're B players, but it is all um, B villains. And so these are all people that are in a supermax prison, but they have some sort of powers that the American government needs to fulfill some sort of mission around the world. So they give them a amount of time off their sentence if they get through the, um, if they go through with whatever the thing is they give them and manage to survive it. And they also put a chip in the back of their, well, not a chip. I'm not exactly sure how it works. I guess it's an explosive. Yeah, it's a small explosive charge that will blow the head off the person if they go off task. And they also have tracker tracking beams on them. And the head of the group is uh, played by Joel Kinnaman. Um, similar to the last Suicide Squad movie. Uh, yeah, so this movie is fun. It's very silly. It has a goofy sense of humor. It will um, it will make you laugh a lot of times, and it will make you go, oh. <laughs> Again, like I said, the violence is played for laughs, which bothers some people, which delights other people. Um, it is, DC is known for being kind of a dark um, comic uh, empire, I don't know, slightly darker than um, Marvel. However, Marvel's pretty dark too. I don't really know who's darker, but it doesn't have a very gung-ho, happy-go-lucky view of America. It... Um, exposes some s systemic problems with the American justice system and um, some very distinct opinions upon that. Um, one of the characters is supposed to be a, a person, a, um, a very uh, all-American, uh, gung-ho sort of uh, American superhero villain. I'm not exactly even sure what you would call him. And that's played by John Cena. Uh, but even he seems to know that there is a problem uh, with how this is being run, this particular setup, as well as a lot of other things in um, international politics and just the treatment of prisoners and humans in general. I, oh, you know, I forgot to give my ratings on the last two movies. Huh. Okay, well, I would pretty much agree with the um, critics on this one. It's, it's definitely like a 90%er. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's a bit popcorn, but it's not, it doesn't suffer from the humor in the way like say 90s 80s movies did where the humor 
I wasn't that integrated with the story in James Gunn's movies and most of the modern Marvel superhero um, genres and gem- movies in general lately have been able to integrate humor and uh, drama in the same plot. I, I really liked it. I liked some of the, um, the uh, animal characters. Um, the sh- shark character is pretty hilarious as well as one called Weasel. Uh, That character does not play a large part in the movie, but uh, look for an end scene, an end credit scene with him. I I also liked the uh, character of Ratcatcher 2, and she's played by Daniela uh, Melchior. And um, her father, who is shown only in flashback, is by Taiki Watiti, uh, who had something to do with the making of the movie also. And um, let's see, Jill Kinnaman, um, as Flag uh, came back and was, is uh, still a very capable, good leader to the group. And of course, Margot Robbie as the inimitable Harley Quinn is amazing. Um, she's just funny and tragic. Um, she's, I guess maybe she's the real version of the Manic Pixie, <laughs> Manic Pixie Psychopath Girl. Um, she's, uh, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl um, trope has been attacked by many critics. Um, I think that part of the reason I don't believe them is that I can see the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in uh, many people in my life and in um, many kinds of media, but uh, just in general, I think that it's, it's a good display of how women are criticized for no matter how they take things in life, how they bring themselves out. and sometimes the hardships of life make you kind of go over the top because you are not allowed to be a lot of times. And so you become construed as being manic, as is Harley Quinn, but uh, she has gone through a lot of trauma, both with her romantic dealings with the Joker and... I'm not really sure in the timeline where she is. She does have a relationship with Poison Ivy and some other people in the comics. Um, she she definitely stands her own and stands up for her own beliefs in this one. Um, she's not nice, but she's not particularly evil either. She, I don't think she would would willingly hurt an innocent in the movie, at least. Uh, I'm not sure about the character themselves throughout all the kind of various media she's in. She is always portrayed as someone who is not necessarily good, but has a heart of gold, and I think that continues through this. Um, yeah, so I... Oh, there goes a truck. <laughs> Welcome, truck. Yes, I still do not have a fancy podcasting studio. Yes, this is still me with my laptop. Um, I 
I would definitely recommend this movie. Uh, high 90s, like I said. Um, be careful for the violence, but other than that, it's great. It's um, it's fun to watch. It's brightly colored. It's fast-paced. It is a little bit long, but it's it's good. It's great, actually. So that's Suicide Squad 2. And then on to probably the exact opposite of, of Suicide Squad 2. Sir Gwen and the Green Knight, which has come out from A24 Studios, which are known to bring out uh, movies such as Midsummer, uh, Hereditary, uh, The Lighthouse. Um, so these are all very quiet, cerebral movies that lean more towards the horror aspect. Um, but Sir Gawain and the Green Knight isn't necessarily horror. It's based on a chivalric poem, a very famous chivalric poem. Uh, it, the poem was originally not named, and it was um, there was no author known to it. Um, they eventually decided to call it Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and uh, they have named the author the Pearl Poet, based on the Bob and Wheel Stanzaic uh, arrangement of the poem. Uh, let's see. It uh, is done in alliterative style and is a, a extremely important and well-known part of chivalric literature or chivalric poetry that could be gone on about for months <laughs> um, of study. There's been so much study on this poem. And um, it was from the 14th century. And it has to do with uh, the King Arthur story and King Arthur's knights. Um, it is before, well, it is, is in the English area of the King Arthur story. So it was written before the Norman invasion when the stories of Lancelot sort of came in and were imposed upon the King Arthur story to give it more of a French feel so that the French people that had taken over England uh, had more of a stake in the national entertainment, I guess, at the time, because, well, obviously there wasn't movies. Um, you couldn't just pop in a DVD or turn on some streaming. Uh, basically, there were uh, poets that wandered around and uh, did their poems uh, and plays to songs and um, acting troops like in Hamlet, etc. Um, this is well before Hamlet, 14th century. Uh, yeah, so this was basically the Suicide Squad, um, the, the, whatever the um, the big blockbuster of its time. Um, it is a very interesting poem because it has to do with some uh, melding of Christian Europe as it became after the... Um, Romans brought Christianity to England, and there's still a bit of a holdout of the old quote-unquote pagan gods, and that is represented by uh, the Green Knight in the story, 
which is extremely interesting because that's not something that is often allowed to shine forth through uh, Christian literature at the time. Um, it is, of course, I guess you'd say balderized um, by the poet and made more Christian um, and in its translation. I believe that it was written down by monks. Uh, I can't remember exactly when. I want to say like the 15th, 16th century. Uh, probably 15th. Um, no, 15th would be 1400, so... Yeah, I'm not sure. I should know all of this by heart because I have most of a master's degree in English literature. I should just like be able to pour this out um, of my actual skin <laughs> at you. But I can't remember the intimate details of Sir Gawain right now. Um, the movie is starring Dev Patel, who is, of course, of Indian uh, heritage, which uh, annoyed and or made happy a lot of the people seeing the movie a lot of the um critics of the movie thought he was a very strange choice uh, another and then a lot of um people who liked the movie thought he was wonderful because he's an extremely good actor and brought a dynamic humility to the movie which is a really interesting way of going about um the part um he stars along with Alicia Vikander of Tomb Raider fame, um, and his mother, Morgan well, Morgos Lefay. Uh, well, I'm not sure if they share a last name, but she's sometimes named Morgan Lefay and sometimes Morgaus in the various literatures. But she's played by Sarita Chandri and. Joel Edgerton plays the uh, mysterious lord of the castle that they see later on. And uh, again, Alicia Vikander plays a double part. She plays the lady of the castle as well as uh, Sir Gawain's um, prostitute girlfriend in the beginning of the film. Uh, the film is beautiful. Uh, the uh, cinematography is extremely well done. Um, it is, uh, it's almost like a watercolor painting. The, uh, the countryside is dark and dim for most of the movie. It's set in like, it's winter time because the poem itself is uh, set on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, where a game of a game of exchanges takes place between this intruder to King Arthur's court and um, eventually uh, Sir Gawain uh, steps up to be the person that exchanges with the uh, Green Knight and all his strangeness uh, as he enters the, the um, culture, I guess, of the chivalric knights. Um, the Green Knight, uh, being green, being of the green, is a representative of the pagan religions that were before the uh, Christianity and Norman religions. 
he uh, is very mysterious. The makeup that is done on him is excellent. I am extremely proud of whoever whoever did that because he looks both horrific and terrifying and also beautiful at the same time. And I think that that is actually something that is true to the form of the poem itself. I highly recommend this film if you like films that are quiet and studious and intellectual and um, movies like that. I think that there was a problem with the marketing of this because it was put out as a chivalric, chivalric, uh, chivalric um, movie with a little bit of a nod towards maybe an exciting um, superhero type movie, but it's not at all. Um, when I heard the title, I was like, oh, this isn't what it what it looks like because people were think, expecting a, a, light, a Excalibur sort of movie, something that was going to be a lot of fun, a lot of fighting. And yeah, there is some fighting in it, but it is mostly a um, kind of a tone poem on the concepts of being a good person, uh, being a, a good human being in, in the world and owning up to the responsibility for your actions and choices, which is a lot of what the poem is about. Then again, I mean, like I said, there's decades upon decades of scholarship on this poem. So, you know, hey, who knows what it's technically actually about. I mean, it's likely that the it was originally written by several people. Um, it played... Uh, literature at the time was very, uh, very folk. It was brought through the countryside by the, the poets, and they did not, um, there is no actual written copy of it. It was learned and um, spread by um, oral means throughout the country. And so uh, the, the population wouldn't have been literate at the time. So it's likely that there is no actual original author, that it's an amalgamation of many, many different poets that uh, brought, were brought together unintentionally, really, by the multiple tellings of the poem. Um, but the movie, which is what we're talking about, <laughs> I have to distract myself back to it. Um, the movie has uh, been seen by some critics that not only didn't like the lack of heroics, but they were confused by the ending. And that prompted um, some musings on it by the director, uh, Lowry. And he says, whether he dies or not at the end, it doesn't matter because we all die. And what's important is that we know that we are what we are becoming. If we are becoming, that we are becoming our best and we are living a good life with righteousness and integrity. And we're not letting ourselves be defined by greatness or legacy or money, but 
working to extend our own personal sense of worth. Uh, the cinematography was by Andrew Palermo. And I, again, like I said, I give this movie... Uh, oh, well, out of five... Um, Green leafy, green leafy gods. I will give it. Um, I will give it four and three quarters. Green leafy gods. Um, I'm not even sure why they're. I'm taking off the the quarter, but it's it maybe to do with the pacing. It could have, even though it's meant to be a dreamy movie, it does. It is a very slow movie to the point of over slowness. I think at a few points. I have to see it again. It I was in theaters for a very short time, and which I think was like a week. And um, um, but yeah, I would say three and a, or four and a half, four and three quarters out of five green leafy men for that. Um, let's see. After math, I would give. Uh, I would give three and a half. Um, spooky relationship thrillers out of five. Uh, Suicide Squad, like I said, um, four and what, I think, no, I didn't give that one a rating either. <laughs> okay, so we're just going to wrap up the ratings here. Uh, so three, four and three quarters uh, weird green men for out of five for Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, three and a half. Spooky relationship movies out of five for after aftermath Suicide Squad. I uh, would again give eh, yeah four and three quarters. Um, four and three quarters exploding heads um, out of five and a quiet place. Uh, what did I say? Ah. Uh, Four, four screaming, uh, screaming deaf, wait, screaming blind monsters, I think is what I said earlier. If not, anyways, it's pretty good. Go see. All of the movies actually in this uh, wrap up I liked, um, including, oh, Blood Red Sky. Um, yeah, forgot to do that one. I would give that one about four sky vampires. Um, <laughs> All right, so this was a quick podcast on Friday the 13th. I'm hoping that Friday the 13th uh, goes to my version of Friday the 13th, which is a positive and happy spin on the date due to the prevalence of black cats in my household. And um, that nothing bad becomes comes upon any of you, and I will see you hopefully in a month. Um, this is it for the Fishnets and Phantoms podcast for August 13th, 2021. Bye.